Imagine having a problem, a problem that caused injury to your physiology, a performance reduction to a sport that you love daily. What would you do? What would you do after looking high and low for answers only to find that there was nothing of the sorts, rather, only options that didn't work for you that caused a challenge in the first place? You'd create one. And that's exactly what engineer and athlete Tim Brennan did. He answered a problem with a solution that not only works, but is changing lives. In a sense, he created a new reality for so many who had difficulty with the same issue. A short story, after many visits with my friend and functional kinesiologist John, we realized that I had feet that were shaped asymmetrically. I can remember when I was young that my feet almost never fit into shoes properly. I remember my feet being a US size 13 when I was in the 8th grade. Just prior to graduating, when I was asked the question, what were you going to leave behind? I answered, my size 13 shoes. Not having properly fitting shoes unknowingly caused lots of issues for me, even injuries. That's why the discussion with Tim is so important to me. Vivo Barefoot, the creation of Tim Brennan, are sold around the world through the well-known Clark Shoe brand, a $500 million shoe company. There is so much to learn during this episode, from designing to marketing to the many life lessons Tim humbly shares. As I mentioned, I recently bought a pair and the reports are in. They're fantastic. My feet, now a size 15 might I add, finally have room to move, play, and function as God intended. Nation, if you know of other products that we can help get the word out on, please let us know. We love bringing solutions to the best and brightest. Hit me up on Facebook or head on over to scottyburgess.com and tap the messenger bubble in the lower right-hand corner of the website and let's connect. As I've been mentioning, big things are still happening here at Healthcare 360, so please continue to provide feedback and suggestions as you navigate our recently updated website. There is so much coming down the line and soon will all be revealed and there are big things happening. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate if you take a moment to write us a quick review. Reviews of the lifeblood to podcast growth and longevity and a positive review pushes Healthcare 360 to the top. Now, let's jump into our conversation with inventor Tim Brennan. And as always, thanks for listening. Welcome back to another episode of Healthcare 360. Today's guest, today's topic is going to affect every single person. So if you remember back in episode 56, when we had Dr. Gary Gray on the show, we talked about this one concept, when the foot hits the ground, everything changes. Now, side bank that for a moment, roughly about a month ago, give or take, I had a conversation with Dr. Turner Osler with Core 360 Chair. He mentioned this one individual who's in front of us today. I said, is there a chance you can connect me with this person? I said, we need to address that topic point. Today, we have the CEO of Vivo Barefoot Shoes, Tim Brennan, in front of us. We had an unbelievable pre-discussion. I was just like super excited. So when we were talking about what Healthcare 360 is all about, what Barefoot Shoes is all about in Vivo, it was a complete and absolute gel from the beginning. Tim's with us today. Tim, you're in the UK, right? I'm in the UK, in the yeah. UK. It's great to be with you, Scott. And just to clarify, I'm the founding inventor of Vivo Barefoot. That was taken on by the Clarks family, so I'm not the CEO, but I'm the man who started the Vivo Barefoot brand. Very good. Even better. <laughs> Even better. Tim invented a Vivo Barefoot while he was a student at the World College of Art. It was a passion project, turned into a mission with the well-known brand here. He was able to combine deep interests of the Alexander Technique, which I'm not really familiar with, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that with his enthusiasm for inventing new products. 
Right now, currently in the United States, as stated, about half of the adult population cannot perform or just enjoy what they enjoy doing as hobbies because of foot problems. This is where the focus has been. So I'd like to start there real quick. There's a really unique story that Tim had explained when he was an athlete that he was experiencing, which kind of spawned this invention and this vision of Vivo. Yeah, well, this story for me goes all the way back to when I was a teenager. Uh, When I was maybe 16, 17 years old, I was really, really passionate about tennis. I still am. But I would spend every single day for maybe three or four hours on a tennis court. I had an amazing tennis coach. And my whole focus in my life at that age was just to learn as much as I could about the sport and learn from my coach. Mm. And the one thing that was getting in my way was I kept twisting my ankles. By the age of 18, I probably had twisted both of my ankles, maybe about a dozen times, something like that. This is the, um, the kind of product that I was wearing. And I think most tennis players would be wearing something fairly similar. It weighs just over a pound, about 500 grams. I'll show so you. So, for those section. who are listening to the audio version only, Tim just picked up an old school, anti-rotic type Adidas footwear. <laughs> Not that Adidas is bad, but we're going to go there. When you take a cross section of that shoe, mm. you have something like this. Wow! Look at all that material. It's pretty stiff. I'm trying to bend it in my hands. It doesn't bend very easily. It's got like an eighth of an inch of foam on the top and the rest of it is is pretty solid rubber you've maybe got almost an inch of sole and it gives a lot of stiffness there's some cushioning as well but that is pretty much what i was wearing on my feet for years and years and i've got used to that what year is it when i was um 17 that would have been so 1994 1995 Mm -hmm. And I just loved watching Andre Agassi. I wanted to do everything that Andre Agassi could do. I would watch videos over and over on the VHS cassettes. I had taken over all the VHS cassettes in my house, filled them up with tennis. Yeah. And I would just watch them endlessly and then go onto the tennis court. And the one thing that was getting in my way was these ankle injuries. I went to university when I was 18. I went to the University of Bath. And I was training with the tennis team there. I was studying a, a degree in mechanical engineering. Something took me in a direction that I didn't expect. I was working on a computer, sometimes as many as 14 hours a day, and I developed a really painful neck issue from that. My father, who is an Alexander Technic teacher, he put me in touch with another Alexander teacher who was nearby in Bath, and she taught me how to sit and use my body in a way which is going to damage me. In addition to that, she also started talking about footwear And we would do some work on walking, how to best use the body effectively and without harming the body. But we would do it all without shoes on. And when I put my shoes on at the end of the lesson, I experienced firsthand how much of an impact the shoes, which are too heavy, too stiff, numbing the soles of our feet and tipping us forward with the heels, how much of an effect they have when we stand, when we walk, when we run everything that we do that is so important to us. I find that interesting when you talk about the numbing of your feet because I've experienced, and I know a lot of people have experienced when they've talked to me about not just their shoes, but if they're exercising. And one particular thing that comes to mind is riding an elliptical machine, like the outsides of my feet, like my pinky toe, that whole area of my foot would go numb. 
Now, it's an open pedal or an open platform on those elliptical machines. And I was equating it to that machine, but maybe it really was the shoe itself. So is that something that you would experience yourself? When I say numb it, the feet have 200,000 nerve endings, which is the highest concentration to be found anywhere in the body. Mm-hmm. And those nerve endings are not really put into good use when we have cushioning. When I say numbing, it's more not being able to feel how we're impacting with the ground. Understood. Okay. Good justification there. Yeah. We're going back into the proprioception realm now as far as just overall feel and adjustment and connecting to the rest of the body. Yeah, exactly. Uh, The way that we make contact with the ground is felt by the the surface of our foot, the the plantar surface. Mm -hmm. That's really a feedback mechanism, which we short circuit with the shoes that we wear, I believe. Yeah, that's really cool. Because when Dr. Oswald was talking about his chair and the position of the core 360, he was always talking about the ankle and the proprioception of the ankle in relationship to the foot, and then relating back up to the lower back. Yeah, it's all connected. <laughs> that's wild. What was going on? So you had some injuries, you had just a lot of ankle injuries. Yeah. You mentioned Alexander technique. Can you walk us through that, why it's important and how it helped you? Yeah, so the Alexander Technique is something that was developed by an Australian who had a horse throat around the turn of the century, around 1900. He Mm. realized that he was pulling his neck back and down and he was giving himself the horse throat. And then he expanded his discovery to teach people how to release excess muscle tension that they didn't need in their body. And that way they could overcome a whole range of different diseases and injuries that they thought were unsolvable. That really uh, made a big impression on me that you could resolve injuries and illnesses by releasing muscle tension. In that community, there's a lot of talk about furniture and specifically school chairs being maybe the starting point of the worldwide problem with with back pain. Sure. And this is back pain starts with, with the furniture we sit on. And so it was a logical step for me to look at my shoes and say, well, maybe there's something for me to learn about, you know, shoe design here. No doubt. So I can see absolutely right now how both yourself and Dr. Turner got along so well, because it's two immediate connection points. We're bringing it all together. Let's rewind, but then fast forward to your injuries and what you were noticing as you were a tennis player and what you were discovering about, well, what you really didn't know about the footwear that you were wearing and then how it's led up to this journey. So the shoes that I was wearing, I believe that they they were very similar to something I was being taught on the engineering degree. Mm-hmm. At that time, there was something called active suspension on cars and active suspension stops the rolling. So if you drive around a corner, you feel the car tipping over to one side and you know by that tip that you're close to skidding off the road. And they were developing cars which were intelligent so they would rebalance the car so it was always perfectly balanced right i felt like the same thing was happening with with my shoes the stiffness and the shape of the sole of of a shoe it provides stability to stop you from rolling over your ankle but it completely takes away your feeling of how close you are to exceeding the capacity of of the shoe And so I would be playing tennis, I'd feel great. And then suddenly I'd get this ankle injury. I had no idea that I was getting close to that, to that limit of lateral stability. I turned up to the training sessions. Um, They started at 8am 
twice a week and I turned up about 15 minutes before and I wanted to see what footwork exercises I could do with no one around. I didn't want people uh, asking me questions. So I took my shoes and socks off. I did some sprints. I did some footwork exercises. I did all the things I would normally do, but I did them completely barefoot. And what I experienced was not, I mean, you know, I, I lost a kilo in footwear, but there was much more than that. I could actually feel what I was doing. I felt much more nimble. I could do things with my footwork. I could get out of the way of shots. Wow. It was it was just a huge revelation that there was something here that if I could make a shoe which was like having bare feet, then I could overcome my injury. I could play better tennis, I believed. After I left the University of Bath, I did another degree in product design. The first semester I was there, I wanted to uh, make some prototypes and that's that's what I did. The next one that I've got to show you is um, is my beloved Nike Hirachi, which I, I cut the sole off and replaced it with some thin leather. And this shoe almost looked like a conventional sneaker, yeah. but it was more like a sock in terms of function. So it's it has complete flexibility. It's just like a pair of socks when you wear them. I remember walking outside in London on the pavement. The weather was terrible. It was raining. My feet got soaking wet. Nobody was looking at my feet and wondering what I was wearing because it looked fairly normal. That was the first ever prototype that I made where I felt like this was the start of something. Well, first off, that's a great prototype that still exists. <laughs> it didn't just completely fall apart. I want to go back to something. Knowing now that you warmed up and you had the experience of barefoot and now when you had to put shoes back on to play tennis, what did you notice in between when your individual warm-up barefoot versus when you had to wear shoes again? Obviously, there are some benefits of shoes, uh, especially when you play tennis. You don't get so many blisters. When you run flat out, in order to stop, the rigid, hard cushion sole, it makes stopping a lot easier. Mm -hmm. So I was finding that I could sprint. I could really get off to a good start, but then stopping it kind of hurt to stop too quickly. Yeah. So there was some some major differences in the way that I was able to, you know, get around the court. In terms of being able to get myself into a position in relation to where the ball was bouncing, there was something profoundly liberating about that. And that that for me was maybe the most important thing in terms of my performance. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to that, I felt like I was never going to get an ankle injury again because as soon as I started to push the limits, I knew, I knew straight away that I was close. And even if I did go past the limit, I didn't end up with a twisted ankle. I just, my, my knee automatically would bend, my hip would bend, and I would, I would fall over before I would twist my ankle because my body, I think it was at a reflex level. My body knew how to deal with, with that um, situation without me even having to think. Wow, that's amazing. Now let's fast forward just a little bit to the prototype. Did you ever play in that prototype you just showed us? I did play in this one and the problem with this one was that after about a set there would be holes in the bottom oh, really? so I kept having to re-glue on um, new pieces of leather and then in the end I, I switched out to a completely different design with this tennis shoe which I cut the sole off and then I laced on a piece of rubber and that sole was a lot easier to replace because it just um, laced on with holes Yeah. and so I played maybe I don't know 50 matches and every time I went to a match, I'd have to lace on a new pair of soles. And I found this shoe amazing, amazing to play in. 
it was fantastic. It got a few strange looks if the people could see the underside, but <laughs> from the top down, it didn't look kind of too crazy from so a distance. For those listening to audio only right now, I'm completely amazed. I'm blown away. Blown away. I love it. So Tim just held up his second prototype. Think of Fred Flintstone, for example. You have laces on the the joint or the where the sole and the leather meet, and it's laced all the way around. It looks really cool. I mean, I I would buy those. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And then yeah, how long so did those last for when you were playing in those? The sole, I think probably a match, maybe a couple of matches, because I wanted the softest rubber, and I hadn't really explored the different rubber options, but this was a very soft rubber, the kind of rubber that gets used in children's shoes. I got some granules, I made it into sheets, and then I just laced them onto the bottom of the shoe here. This was in the summer of 2001 that I played probably about 50 matches in these shoes. And it was actually this, this shoe that I was wearing against an opponent. And at the change of ends, he, he asked me what I was wearing on my feet because they looked kind of interesting. And <laughs> our conversation led to him giving me the number of one of the Clark's family, who obviously was someone that I could take the prototypes to and, and potentially um, do something which would get into production. Did you win that match? Um, I'd have to look on my records. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's going back uh, 20 years. But yeah. I, I, have, I have a good feeling that I maybe won that match. Yeah, I have a good feeling. So when you talked about with that leather and that prototype specifically and how it's laced together and you had to do a transfer, how long did it take to relace a new bottom to that? I was living in London and I would sit on double-decker buses for maybe a couple of hours sometimes to go to matches and a couple of hours on the way back. So I wasn't short of time. So if that process to resole a pair of shoes, if it took me an hour, an hour and a half, that probably was the case. And to me, it was it was fine because I had loads of time to kill on the top of double-decker buses in London. Right, right. Wow. All right. I have a lot of questions. That's even on the manufacturing for like the final products that we have today. Yeah. What was next? What happened next after this? So did you automatically go to the Clark family or were you still refining the product and playing with it yourself? It was coming towards the end of my degree. I developed this prototype, which isn't the best looking shoe of all time, but I was focused on the function. Mm -hmm. I wanted to give the toes lots of room. I wanted to make it completely flexible. I put a zip in so that replacing the sole would be really straightforward and quick. This was my idea for the sports shoe at the time. Mm -hmm. So the next thing that happened was um, my tennis coach said to me, you still haven't called the clerks. Been, that's been a while now and you've got the number and you haven't rung them. So I'm very glad to say that he said, I'm going to put the phone down now and you're going to ring the clerks. And if, <laughs> if he hadn't said that, I probably wouldn't be sitting here today with you. Oh, no uh, so I took my prototype to the clerks. Uh, I was introduced to the whole clerks family. In addition to the Clark's brand, which is a huge company, they had a smaller brand called Terraplana, mm -hmm. and that was owned by Lance Clark, and his son was running the company, and his name was Galahad. Lance a lot um, had a son, Galahad. I'm not making this up. These are their real names. <laughs> and, and I was introduced to them, and very quickly, it was clear that Lance wanted this shoe to be made. This was something that he really believed in. He'd been looking for what he called the six-toe shoe for 20 years. And here I was having presented it and he wanted to develop this product to production. That's what we did. We set off in 2003, it was around March. So you're going back 
18 years. Mm -hmm. So we started producing the next one, which is this one. And you can see the last shape has changed, a bit of a hole in this one, but the zip was still intact. A lot of the key points were there. It It was highly flexible. It was like having a second skin. We were utilizing Kevlar in the sole unit so that whilst we have an ultra thin three millimeter sole unit, it was puncture resistant. So if you stepped on glass, it wouldn't go through. And so you were safe, but you had a barefoot feel. That's amazing. With the Clark family, fast forward to them real quick. What was their fascination with shoes? Why did they get into that business as well? Did they identify the same problems or challenges that you did? Well, I only found out afterwards, but if you go back around about 150 years to when the Clarks got started, Mm -hmm. they had in their marketing material similar information to what you'd find on the Vivo Barefoot website. So they believed in anatomical designs that respected the the shape of the foot. I'm not sure how flexible they were, but they definitely gave a lot of thought to the toes and giving space for the toes to spread out. And so what I was presenting was maybe like the 2.0 version of where Clark started out. It was like going back in time. There was something that resonated with with their founding philosophy of the Clark's brand. Terraplana was the ideal test bed because it was a small company. They could produce this shoe, put it in the line and see how it went. Fast forward, I think maybe seven or eight years later, the Vivo Barefoot shoe was outselling all of the other Terraplana products. So they changed the name of the company to Vivo Barefoot and that's the company that is in existence today. So let's jump into what we know about American footwear, and maybe that's the wrong term or identity there, but footwear at large. Yeah. What did you discover as far as what the challenges were and what people really didn't know about their footwear and the shoes that they're picking, and then the challenges that you were trying to overcome in developing your product to make sure that when someone put a pair of your shoes on, there was absolutely no way they can turn back? I would say that the shoe and the foot and the way we use our body are all interlinked. I don't think you can talk about the shoe in isolation. I'm careful to point that out because sometimes people think if they put on a barefoot shoe, then magically their injuries will go away. Mm -hmm. But there's a, a transition period. They need to learn how to move in a different way, to use their body in a different way. It's not just behavior. The the actual foot itself changes when you put on a barefoot shoe. So there's a fat layer in the sole of our foot, which builds up the more that you take away the cushioning in the shoe. And that takes a few months to build up. So there's a real change in the in the way the foot is made up. Is that necessary? Um, Would they have that, that fat pad build up now? Is that a like, natural process for us? Yes, yeah. it's natural. It only goes away when you have a cushioned sole. I believe that comes back. The the muscles make an adjustment because you don't when you don't have a heel, there's a natural lengthening of the Achilles and the calf. Mm-hmm. And that has a knock-on effect. You you're adjusting your posture, your entire posture. When you have a heeled shoe, that has knock-on effects right the way through the body. That's just the heel alone. Mm-hmm. I found one of the most important things for me was the thickness of the sole was creating extra leverage when i was playing tennis that was stressing my ankles i wasn't able to be very let's say neat with my footwork 
just picking up a pound of weight on each foot, just walking, forget playing tennis or running or any sport. If you're just walking with a pound of weight additional on, on your feet, that's going to change the way you walk. You're not going to yeah. lift your feet up in the same way. You're going to scuff your feet more. It puts wear and tear on the body by doing that because there's extra muscle tension needed. Mm-hmm. And then the way that the shoe masks sensation is also really critical in the way that we land too far out in front if we run. We're just really hard on our body unnecessarily, and we don't know we're doing it because the shoe masks the feelings that we would otherwise get. What did you find with the correlation of understanding the gait cycle? I get very technical with some of this stuff, so I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on this. With the weight of the foot, with that extra kilogram like you talked about in the psoas, the hip flexor muscle. Well, I know that running, for example, Mm -hmm. the thing that I think limits cadence, which is like the the tempo of your running, I believe is very um, strongly related to the weight of the shoe and the flexibility. The more dexterous your feet are, the quicker the cadence you can have. Mm -hmm. And that cadence really is important in order to, to land underneath the hip. If you have a heavier shoe, I feel that it's encouraging the runner to land further out in front, which is known as overstriding. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't feel bad. It actually feels like you're running properly. But what you're actually doing is every time your foot hits the ground, you're putting impact through the body because you're landing out in front. It's the way you put the brakes on. I think that the way that the body is designed is for the foot to land underneath the hip. I think cadence and and hip movement, the hip rotation are very closely related. So I think it's spot on to say that they impact each other in my experience. Now, did you also do investigative studies about how the psoas, iliopsoas of the hip and the the soleus of the foot correlate back to each other? Because they're one and two together. You have impact, you have sensory information. And then you have hip rotation mobility, which is the core foundation of spinal stability and making sure we're not in a fight or flight response with our head because we don't want to run into a term that we call labyrinth writing reflex. So if your body feels like it's falling, it's going to put its hand out to protect the brain. Well, this is very much um, the realm of the Alexander technique, the relationship of each part of the body to one another. I'm aware of, you know, shoulder, hip knee, ankle, I believe that relationship of those joints is one affects the other. So if you're running with round shoulders, which is quite common, given we spend so many hours at school, rounded shoulders affect the hip, affect the knee, affect the ankle. Whilst I didn't do any biomechanical lab studies, which I would love to see someone do something like that. It's really where the Alexander Technique excels because it's such a common sense approach. And Mm. you can see in someone that when you adjust a shoulder, the knee and the hip adjust automatically. It's a very hands-on, a lot of mirrors are used, so you can actually see it in real time. That was really the starting point. When I was sort of 1999, that's what I was learning, mm-hmm. that this whole project made complete sense. I want to go back for the, one of the original shoes that you were talking about with the high heel. Yeah. And I'm going to work from the heel going towards the forefoot. What does a high heel cause in our body biomechanically? What's happening there? The foot is like a tripod. One point is on the heel. One point is just under the ball of the big toe. And the Mm -hmm. other one is on the ball of the small toe. Mm -hmm. 
the weight distribution between the front and the back of the foot is naturally probably about 50-50. Now, as soon as you put a high heel on, you've put all the weights, pretty much like 90% of the weight onto the front of the foot. You're stressing the bones in the foot. You're also shortening the Achilles and the, the calf muscles. You're putting all of that into tension, which might be attractive to look at for some people. It's something which in the short term probably is not that harmful, but in the long term, I think the body adapts to that. And so the muscles shorten. It puts the knee into a lot of tension mm -hmm. and it puts the ankle into a lot of tension. So at first, it doesn't feel too bad. People feel confident. It feels great. Are you referencing high heels there for women? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And to a lesser extent, the, the heel that you find on a sneaker, mm -hmm. it's most exaggerated in, in the shoes that women wear. Right. Not only that, when you start to push the weight further forward, I think that it can put a lot of pressure for the foot to move into the shoe. If you've got a pointed shoe or there's not enough space for the toes, it's squashing the toes into unhealthy shapes as well. It's shortening muscles. It's increasing muscle tension. It's putting more tension, more compression into joints, which 20 years down the line could fail. It, it might not be obvious to the user why that's happened. And doctors, I don't think it's obvious to them. A lot of time they'll say, well, this is just wear and tear on the body. You'll have to stop doing your sport so much. Right. Um, yeah, th this is my opinion. I loved how you just correlated the big toe, the pinky toe, and the heel as a triad at the foot. Knowing that now and having the heel lifted, knowing that the midfoot is where the disbursement of energy occurs for translation yeah. in that relationship between those three points, what did you discover there in the shoe development process? The flexing at the ball of the foot is not only is the shock absorption system for the body, mm -hmm. Yeah, even when you land in the midfoot, that arch is absorbing shock. Right. What I found was that when you have a shoe which is rigid, it's effectively like you're splinting that joint. For someone who understands how the locomotive system operates, absorbing shock, feeling shock, and responding to changing gait and load loading behavior, I mean, the shoe is a bit of a spanner in the works, to be honest with you. I'm glad to say that, you know, 20 years later, we're a lot more conscious of that. Even the people who kind of conventional looking shoes, there's some consciousness around where they're landing. Are they landing too far out front? Are they landing on the midfoot, the heel, going towards something that's a bit more flexible, even if it still has some cushioning? I think that we're in much better shape than we always have been. And yet the story is really just starting for me. I see there's a long way to go, especially with children's shoes, mm. because like I said before, the, the footwear, you can change to a perfect barefoot shoe design. But if you've been wearing something that's compromised your foot for the last 20, 30 years, then there's so much that has to change. It's a difficult process to actually recover from. So my ideal situation would be to get children into barefoot shoes as quickly as ideally from the beginning their feet never get used to a cushion sole never get used to something that has a heel never get used to something that's too stiff and stops their foot from flexing i find that really fascinating because i remember when my kids were young you probably remember as well remember how thick those little soles are those little cute little shoes that they look like these little just like 
balls of this cushion and, and material in such a small package. Now looking at having a kid develop at that young age with all the different wiring that's being rebuilt. Well, I shouldn't say rebuilt, being built at that time. The lack of proprioception at the foot, I can see the long-term effects of that starting at yeah. that young age. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Those shoes are, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be as dramatic as saying they're kryptonite for the foot because the foot does does cope. It copes for a very long time, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And the problems might not show up until your 30s, your 40s, your 50s. And so that's pretty remarkable for, for the body to be compromised like that and to not get injured for such a long time. What I'm really looking for is the habits the habits are hard to change. Sure. So yeah. when someone has been wearing that shoe for their whole childhood, that habit has been formed. And then my thoughts go into fashion because the most fashionable products on the market are the Nike Jordans, the you know the Air Force One. I love those shoes as much as anyone. At the same time, I can see that it's not the optimal design for the foot. Right. The thing that really inspires me is looking towards a future where the shoes that all young people want to wear are the shoes that are the best shoe for their foot imaginable. Yeah, I agree. I want to go back to something. I don't want to forget a couple of these points, but we were talking about the midfoot and the disbursement of energy there. Yeah. I want to address people who have flat feet versus people who do not have flat feet in the navicular bone. So the navicular bone is a crucial part of the foot, shock absorption area, just on the inside of your foot, right in front of your ankle, where you have that bounce up and down, up and down, where most of the disbursement of the energy takes place. What was the challenge there trying to develop a shoe between really three different foot types, flat foot, midfoot, and high arch? I did some research. Um, there was a study where they looked at people in India and China. There were a few of them, actually, and they looked at their foot health. It was an interesting study because they could look at people who were too poor to wear shoes, and they could also look at people who had money and they could wear shoes. They found that one of the factors, a couple of the factors for flat feet, number one, it was how much they wore shoes as a child. And number two, it was how much weight they had beyond recommended weight. For me, there's a lot of history to to the foot. When someone has flat feet, I would would be cautious to say, get a, a flexible barefoot shoe because each person has a different history. There might be scar tissue. There might be something that is unknown. Um, so I think you've always got to treat each individual um, separately. But from my point of view, I think that the way that people go up onto the ball of the foot, that exercises the muscles in the arch, mm-hmm. and which I believe form the arch. I think there's a, a very important relationship to going up onto the ball of the foot and developing a healthy arch. I would never say it's too late. If you have flat feet, I think taking a healthy interest in looking at what can I do, looking at the Alexander technique, looking at footwear, even taking off your shoes completely and going, some people wear shoes in their home. I recommend to be in socks or barefoot to exercise those muscles and to see if the arch responds. You know, you can start off with just start off really gradually. So it's not too much too soon for the foot. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to buy anything. It's That's the great thing about it. You can just walk around your home without shoes on and after a period of months, see how your, your foot gradually becomes accommodated and see how the arch responds to that. So I want to work backwards from this question right here. Obviously, you've heard success stories. People have had 
success, no joint pain, everything's gone away. But to get to that point from where you were in the first release of the product to where it mm -hmm. is, what iterations going through, knowing that they wanted to get flat foot yeah. and, and then that slow introduction, how does that whole process look like? How did it take shape? It's a big yeah, so question. I don't understand the process there, and I'm trying to get that out. Okay. To begin with, the shoe was always a tennis shoe for me. Mm -hmm. And it started off that way, and it still is today. And I play tennis in it. I love it for tennis. At the same time, I understood that there was this product was not just for tennis. It wasn't just for tennis players. There was something in here for people who just want to walk or people who want to run. What I went through to adapt my running and my feet to get used to this product, I didn't know how that could be rolled out on a huge scale. So when we launched the shoe in 2003, we didn't speak about sports. I felt like it was something which I would want to have personal contact with people in order to help them. And there had to be an interest as well. They had to be personally interested in recovery mm -hmm. because this isn't really a product where you can just put on your um, injured feet after 20 or 30 years and magically everything is better. What happened was the market suddenly went towards running. The book Born to Run came out. Vibram had launched their Five Fingers product, which was um, a running shoe. There was a lot of interest in how could this product be used for running. The market really had a will of its own. The way that Viva Barefoot responded was to hire coaches who could coach people to just really put a lot of emphasis on the marketing, on the education. And I feel like Vivo Barefoot is not just about the shoe. It's equally about the education. And I think it reaches beyond people who've never bought a Vivo product. There's a level of education which is, is really important of how the foot works, how the way our shoes are designed interacts with the body, and that healthy interest is crucial in getting someone from being injured right the way through a very, very gradual process, which could take more than a year, maybe longer, wow. um, to the point where they've overcome an injury. And sometimes they do need one-to-one -one tuition from a professional. It really depends on the situation. Looking at the patience of just general consumers. They want the app effect. They want to be able to click a screen and have something automatically pop up and have that experience right away versus something that has to be gradually rolled out. They're uncomfortable. They have an injury. There's something going on there. What do you tell people? How do they adapt to that as far as their expectations? Because I'm sure they had to have been thought about in the marketing and then the overall campaign of the product. Sometimes the best you can do is write an instruction manual and the thing that no one reads until, <laughs> until something happens, you know? I got to tell you a quick story. So we had Frank Shamrock on the show a few weeks back. He's like, yeah, before I buy anything, I always ask for the instruction manual and I'll read it. <laughs> <laughs> he does the complete opposite of what everyone does not do at first. So I, I had to bring that up. Well, I think the reason why people don't read the instruction manuals often is because they're kind of boring. Sure. So the marketing is like an instruction manual, but it's it's easy to understand and it's it's compelling. And I think that's the thing that has been done brilliantly by the people at Vivo Barefoot. They've used imagery to show how the foot works. And yeah, in the first place, it was a learning process, not knowing how to convey so much to people. It was like a brand new way of thinking about shoes. 
Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. It it does to to a degree. It, it also comes down. I people have to be patient. I think is a underlying answer there as well. Yeah, you said um, that people are impatient. Yeah, I think like a video game. A video game builds you up slowly. It doesn't throw you in at level twenty. Sure. It starts you off, and things are pretty easy, and you're learning, the th- and it's fun, you know. And I think that's kind of what the shoe needs to be treated like you know start off slowly we do want to go and run marathons in the best product you know um sometimes people dive in at the deep end but the more i think about it it is about patience it's about taking a healthy interest i mean i have dr turner's aerial chair with me right now Mm -hmm. and he sent it to me and said just use it for half an hour and obviously the first thing i did was sit on all day so I sat on it for a, after about an hour and a half, I could start to feel something, and then it's a very different way of sitting. Yeah, I'm as guilty as anyone. What yeah. would happen if you put a pair of Vivos on and you started wearing them all day, outside of yeah. getting a sore foot or maybe like a sore Achilles? It depends what you're doing. Um, I guess if you're standing, you might feel that there's a there's no heel, so you might get. Um, if your calves have been shortened, which could be the case, then you might feel like they're tired. Mm-hmm. If you went walking, you might feel like there's there's not enough padding in the heel, especially. Mm-hmm. That will come if you keep wearing the shoe, or you you know you can put some insoles, like you know therm- the thermal insole that comes with some of the Viva Perfect shoes. That's that sometimes is quite a good transitional you know addition whilst your foot is kind of slowly getting used to it. Mm-hmm. If you went and did some serious like you know long distance running. I feel like your entire body is is being um, used in a different way. The the cushioning on a on a shoe, I wouldn't say is one hundred percent unnecessary. It's only unnecessary if you want a natural running technique. The way that we've learned to run, the cushioning is actually pretty important. It's protecting the foot somewhat. Mm-hmm. The only trouble is, is it's not protecting it enough. And the thing that really can do a great job of protecting the foot is the natural shock absorption of the arch and the ankle and the knee and the hip. But in order to get that benefit, you need to run in a a different way. And that means natural gait. The way that I think the the shoes evolved, they did start off as a tool, like you say. Um, They allowed us to walk over very cold ground. We could walk over volcanic rock, which is incredibly sharp, without having our feet damaged. And it really started off as maybe like a pair of gloves. It was a tool. Over the years, it developed such a um, sort of mythical status that people look at all sorts of shoe designs and they feel like it gives them confidence. They feel they can run faster in the product. But really, it is, I think, still a tool. And the more we got injured, the more we added heels and stiff you know, soles, I think the philosophy was the body is somehow inherently flawed, that there's a weakness. Mm-hmm. And if you're sending a delicate vase in the post, something that's fragile, you wrap in bubble wrap. And so the more something gets injured in the body, the more bubble wrap we add. Right. Really, the thing that made a lot of sense to me is some of the science that was done before I even started this project was saying the body is not flawed. It has a huge capacity to run on hard surfaces, any surface you like, unnatural surfaces, tarmac, Mm -hmm. concrete. It's an amazing shock absorption mechanism. The problem is that there's too much bubble wrap around it and you you can't (laughs) feel what you're doing. And so we're not going to adapt to something we can't feel. 
I guess you could argue for and against that. For me, that's exactly the Vivo philosophy, taking away to letting the, the inherent capacity of the foot to shine. Okay. Um, and I think this philosophy is is still, and the science is still coming out. You know, there's the footwear industry at the moment is still heavily weighted for the cushion sole, by the way. But the more that this sector of minimalist shoes expands, the more science is going to be done and the more this kind of philosophy can be adapted. And, and there's there's products out there for each individual to explore the philosophy by themselves. I think when someone takes on the responsibility for their own body, then everything changes. Mm -hmm. It's not like that chair is going to fix me. I'm going to fix myself and this is a tool. Right. And that that's the sort of fundamental shift that I think people need to make. It's not a, a magic bullet solution. It's not going to make me faster automatically as soon as I put the shoe on. It's not going to take away my injuries. It's something which I'm invested into learning about my body and I'm invested in looking at my form, looking at the way that I'm landing and you know making small adjustments. And I think it's it's a really valuable tool to to have a choice at least that there are products now on the market that can emulate the barefoot experience. Yeah. And that's a great way of putting that too, because I mean it's never there is never a magic bullet out there. It's always are you participating in yoga? Are you stretching on your own? Are you sweating? Are you getting your body heated up? There's a lot of different variables going on there. And that's where I go back to. So when holistically, going back to the beginning, what we were talking about as the body works as a unit, having the right tool, really the shoe is a tool, nothing more. It's to prevent cuts and strains and blisters. So you can get from point A to point B without causing a shortened Achilles tendon, reducing the fat on the bottom of your foot, having increased proprioception and awareness so it's connected from the ground to the brain, all of the above. Because that's everything that we just talked about in a nutshell. And yeah. then, of course, we have to make them stylish. And I'm looking at some pretty magnificent shoes here that I'd, I'm like, I'd wear those, I'd wear those. <laughs> so what are your favorites? The ones I have on, the, the Primus Light. I'll show you them on camera. This is my favorite shoe, probably of all time. It's a great shoe. I'm looking at it. Is that the all-weather, the Primus Light 3? This is a road shoe, so it has this tread on the bottom. Mm -hmm. It's primarily a, a road running shoe, but I play tennis in this. It's a shoe that I just wear pretty much nothing about that shoe. Wow. How long do yeah. they last as far as the durability? Do you focus there as well with the durability of the shoe? To start off with, I was using any rubber that I could get my hands on. And then eventually we switched over to thermoplastic urethane and we used that for maybe 15 years. And it's recently now switched over to uh, natural rubber. Yeah, the durability is very good. They're very well-specified rubbers. And even though the sole is just three millimeters thick, it's about an eighth of an inch, the way that you can feel the ground, I think is is very different to a conventional shoe. So the scuffing, it, it, it microscopic, almost barely noticeable scuffing can cause the shoe to wear out in certain places. Mm -hmm. So your dexterity, the nimbleness of footwork um, helps to keep the shoe yeah, um, from developing holes in the sole. What was the toughest part of the journey? Like what was the real challenging part and not just the fashion, because I, I know fashion means a lot because if you can't sell it and from the design to make sure it did what it was promised and what people expected to do, 
And then based on, I mean, even the years, I mean, because technology back when you first released it in 2003 is much different than today. What was that evolution looking like? From a very young age, I've been taking things apart, putting things back together again. I love... True engineer. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I do naturally. That's my default activity. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, you know, finding the materials, figuring out, you know, building shoes, it comes naturally. There are challenges, but I, I love challenges that way. The thing that came not easily to me was not being supported by people around me. And it, it really it really was hard when, in the very early days, when a tutor would sit down and say, you've got no product here. You're talking about all of the limitation of the shoe. So the product obviously is no shoe. I don't see that there's a project in this you know, Vivo Barefoot for you. And for me, I, I mean, it's, it's such a new concept that that came up quite a bit. You'd have conversations with people where they were so convinced that it was important to have cushion under the foot and you needed arch support. And those are the kinds of conversations we had endlessly. For me, those were the challenges which really had to dig deep because I think the reason why I became so good at figuring out how products work and solving problems by myself is with a kind of a deep sort of belief that, uh, you know, I was on my own and people wouldn't understand me. Mm. And so I got really good at, at figuring things out by myself in life. And then suddenly in order to get the shoe out there, I've got to take this product to the masses. I've got to be seen. And suddenly this whole concept of people wouldn't understand me and I'm on my own becomes challenged if that makes sense yeah most certainly wow so you had some you had some deep-rooted acceptance issues in the beginning what it sounds like as far as will they like it because you heard a lot of naysayers and doubters just not understanding your vision and how i equate that is your vision was so far out here you just didn't have a way of conveying it to words yet that was digestible to somebody else yeah the whole world was going a certain direction and I was one person going in in the other direction and everyone wanted a a shoe that looked like you know fashionable um and the the shoes that I was producing were kind of like duck feet you know yeah yeah it was a challenge but I think the thing probably like the one of the most important things was that I wanted to play tennis I didn't want to give up tennis which was looking more and more likely that I could never play competitive tennis Again, mm-hmm. it would just be kind of very recreational. That really hurt. So that that was a pain that I was trying to balance. Additionally, I, I think everyone wants in their life to know that they made a difference to not just themselves, but to the wider community. And so I think I went past my limits, went out of my comfort zone in order to make a difference in the world, to help people who wanted this as an option I really believe in that today, that if people want to explore this as an option, then that's my contribution. Dr. Gary Gray was in the same level when the last comments that you just talked about as far as fashion, people wanted something that was more fashionable and that looked good versus what was more functional and productive for their body. And during that episode, he said, you know, look, we would do this full analysis, and but they were like, you know, I'm going to go out and get my X brand of this new style of shoe regardless thinking it was going to make him play well, it did the complete opposite. So he mentioned the same exact thing. He got to the point where he's like, look, you can believe that, but this is really what's going to take shape and what's going to go down and how it's going to happen. 
I'm curious now. So now you developed this amazing product. You've solved a significant problem from the root cause. And that's an important statement from the root cause. Because there is a big, big push right now going in the healthcare community at large where people are looking for the functional medicine doctor going back to nature because we are starting to see and realize we're screwing things up the more we try to lay things on science and data. It's important to understand it, but the merger of those two, the science and data combined with the natural is really, really important. So with that, my question is, you have this amazing product, minimalistic shoes, no sole, increased sensitivity in the foot. Who's starting to now copy or follow what you've created as far as the other companies? I wouldn't say copy, but at the same time, there was there were two other competing products. Maybe they were launched around 2004. It happened pretty soon afterwards. And so um, I remember walking into Nike Town and seeing the first thing that I came to walking in the front doors in, in Oxford Street was the Nike Free. You know, back in the day in 2004, when I saw that product, I looked at the marketing material. I felt like I was reading our own marketing material, Really, which um, Lance Clark would always say that that was um, a great thing. If you're leading the way, you know, it's a great thing to be a leader. And at the same time, I, I hadn't had any recognition at that point, And I was kind of a bit nervous that they were going to take all the recognition. And it was a difficult moment seeing that. But I think the fact that Nike have got their free, I think that is... That's a great thing. It's like the philosophy, the meaning that you, you mentioned earlier that people believe in a product and they want to put the product on and they believe it's going to make them run faster. Right. I think as humans, we have this amazing ability to put meaning onto everything around us. You know, you look at some tennis players, they will stay in the same hotel. They'll do everything the same. When they're on the court, they'll always want the same chair. They'll always want to pull their socks up the same way before each uh, match. Right. It's kind of ridiculous, but it's what gets the very best performance out of a person is having a deep sense of meaning, even if it's you know not founded in science, it does actually improve performance if it works for the individual. Mm-hmm. I can see that I'm not the person that will walk up to people and say, you need to stop wearing that shoe because I've got the, the shoe that's going to help you. What they want, that shoe, they might already be getting. And the meaning that they put on the shoe, who am I to say that that's not helpful to them? Right. I think it's a choice. There's there's a choice now, whereas when I was starting out, there was no choice. The choice was that you go along with the cushion sole philosophy or you run barefoot and you don't get to fit in with the mainstream fashion. So mm-hmm. but I'm yeah. thinking here of you in that moment right there. All you're thinking about at this time is, how your body is no longer spraining its ankle and your body is now picking up the perception and the body is now doing its job because of a shoe. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's really cool. It's a great feeling to know that my kids are growing up with Vivos on their feet. That's one thing I don't have to worry about. And yet I think about the journey I went through with my ankle problems Sometimes problems lead to good things. So I, I never look at a situation and say there's no good in that because all of the problems that I had facing not being able to play tennis again, that was a really difficult moment. Mm-hmm. But Vivo came out of that. 
it really is down to what people do in a situation. People get injured. It's what you do that counts. It's not about always avoiding problems. It's about how you problem solve. Yeah, that's that's really what I'd like to kind of um, emphasize for, for people listening, that if you've got a problem, never look at it as purely a bad thing. It could be actually something that winds up improving your performance eventually. Yeah. So I'm going to end off here with two final questions I always ask my guests. First one is, you're a mechanical engineer. You have a very rich history of education. How do you keep yourself educated? What do you choose to listen to, read, to keep yourself going, to kind of stay on top of it? Well, at the moment, I, I'm developing my skills in computer graphics. And I think I've been doing that for more than 20 years. Wow. It's one area which, to be an inventor and have all these ideas, the marketing and the, the visualizations are so important in order to get mm-hmm. that idea communicated in just a few seconds. Because the profound ideas, they could be a million miles away. Like every sci-fi fan knows, you just look at a few seconds of a movie and you're right there in a new future. So for me, that's one thing that I'm always looking to improve on. You've gone through the full marketing experience. We just settled on our tagline for Healthcare 360. And we put a lot of thought into it. We probably came up with, I would say, respectfully, about 30 to 35 ideas as far as what the tagline would be. We just settled on Healthcare 360, our healthcare reimagined. Oh, love it. We wanted to create community around it. We wanted to bring everyone to not just our podcast, but they know when they come here to listen to a podcast or watch a show that it's going to be the most unique the most individual minds of health and wellness out there, they're going to help reshape what they think healthcare medicine really is. I love it. Simple. We'll come up with like long phrases, shorter phrases. And I was like, ah, and, and we were going off feeling. We came up with the reimagined. And I was like, ah, okay. And then it was, we would think about uniting as well, because that's actually another strong word that we really were convicted by. Because everyone who's come on the show, I've had pre-discussions with them, like, would that fit? Is that different? How atypical is it? Is it that too far off the mainstream? Is it validity to it? All these different thoughts were coming up. And uniting was not about the show, but it was about the guest pool of people that were creating the environment. But then when we thought about the word imagine, imagine is unity at the same time. It's You can do anything with that. It's limitless. So that's why we, we ended up camping out there. Yeah, I love it. It's about creating a new future. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, I like that too. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Cool. The other thing that I'm looking to improve on is going past the things that hold me back. So my personal development, I'm a big fan of Tony Robbins courses, the landmark courses. I've done huge amounts of of those kinds of things. Um, Whenever someone mentions a book, I'll put it straight on Audible and I'll listen to that on my runs. I listen to your podcasts. Oh, thank um, you. This morning, I'm, I was listening to Dr. Gary on, on my run this morning. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wasn't I, he an I, amazing person? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm just always looking to, when someone gives me a recommendation, I always make a note of it and I put it straight onto my podcast list. That's how I keep myself learning all the time. Right now, I'm finding that I don't have much time to read as far as books and even listen to audiobooks. I'm finding that. A lot of my education is coming through just working with people and just posing the question, I don't know, what would that look like? And then learning the process. Kind of another, yeah. it's another cool way of doing it. 
Final question for you. You get to leave the audience with whatever you would like to tell them. Back in the day, I would say to friends when we'd walk past a shoe shop that one day my shoe will be in that shop. I like to dream big. I always thought that it would be pretty quick and pretty easy. And what I found was that it takes a long time. But what I think people will find is that they'll always overestimate what they can do in a year or two years, but they'll always underestimate what they can do in 10 or 15 years. Sure. And one person reaching out and collaborating with another person on a, on a big idea and doing a project together, you never know 10 or 15 years down the road where it could lead. And so I would always encourage everyone to dream big, always believe that they can change the world no matter how long it takes. I think the Vivo stories for me is only just getting started. Mm. Fast forward another 15 years and I think there could be a, a major revolution in every shoe on the planet. So always believe in yourself, be patient. That's fantastic. My first challenge I'm going to look for when I look to make my first purchase of these shoes is to see if they come in size 15. <laughs> I have a rather large foot. How do people, can they get the shoes here in the US? You can buy them online. There's also some mm. stores that sell them as well. So depending on which state you're in, there might be a shoe shop near you. They do, um, I think, a 100-day guarantee that you can buy the shoes wow. and wear them for 100 days. And if you're not happy with them, if you don't get along with them, you can just return them and get a refund. You might want to double-check that. That's how it has been for a long time. Okay, cool. Tim, I can't thank you enough. This is great. Really insightful. Just the entire experience and process and the development and the result of it. You have a fantastic-looking shoe. And you have a thank product you. that's going to help a lot of people. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Pleasure to meet you. And if I can help people with their health, then it's my pleasure. And I think that's what we're here for. That's why you created the podcast so that we can lead lives pain-free with more freedom and um, achieve our potential. So it's really my pleasure to be here and to have this opportunity to share my story. Thank you. For your next products that are going to be released to the market, we'd love to bring you on to talk about those as well. I think that'd be really cool and fun. Just to give you a bit of a clue, um, my goal is to end back pain worldwide in my lifetime. And so that's what I'm working on at the moment. Wow. Okay. There is probably a round two coming up then. Another episode. We appreciate you being here. Thank you for being a part of the 360 Nation. We'll see you for the next one. Take care. Boom. That's it. Wow. That wow. is fascinating. All the details that go into what looks like a little simple product but all the years and just massaging out the details. Awesome. Scott, you're doing a great job and thank you for uh, giving me this chance. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. It was really fun. You brought up a lot of stuff. I was like, wow, look at that. I just love playing around and bouncing around. It's so cool just to be able to just go out and have a free conversation like this while you're learning. I know Michelle and I were quick to get our girls into those cute baby shoes even before their first steps. Now imagine if a solution like Vivo Barefoot was around as their first shoe, now knowing what you know, proper mechanics, function, range of motion, more of a protector of the overall physiology. Is there a chance that a shoe that could be considered healthy for your body could become a trend for the younger generation? In my opinion, the answer is yes. I wanna thank Tim for sharing his experience and life with us. We're fortunate to have guests on Healthcare 360 like the life force that Tim is, who's changing the world one step at a time. From all of us with the Healthcare 360 team, we thank you for your continued support 
we'll see you for the groundbreaking episode number 94 that you're going to want to share many times over. See you there.